And I wonder if you think about your own time in the Word as you've been reading, uh, maybe in your own time or reading with other people or trying to engage the Scripture as a whole. If you read the Scriptures, you'll notice that God is spoken about by things like illustrations or examples and often even comparisons between this and that where He's separate from all of that. Words go on and on and on to describe God. Our sermon's text today shows God doing things that really may shock you. A continuation of these minor prophets showing God doing things, being someone, and hearkening for a day where things like wrath and judgment will pour out. And and those things often shock God's people. And it may seem often out of balance. He acts this way and acts that way. He is this way and he is that way. And and is he in balance in all this? The prophet Amos tells God's people and the world who would be hearing and listening that God will certainly judge everyone because he actually cares. He will judge because he cares. Very often you might ask yourself, do I think that God will judge me or will God judge someone else? You may even long for the day where God will judge evil finally and permanently. And I'd imagine most of you would do this. And if you do see him like that, do you think at the same time he is a God who cares? He's a caring God. Does God care about the world's evil and suffering? We hope he'll judge evil and suffering. But does he care about it? Does God extend his care to individuals like Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden or even ordinary people on your street or in your house? Does God care over your life? Does God care about your actions? Does God care about the personal wrongs that have been done to you or maybe the the suffering that you endure because of other people and even the wrongful actions maybe of religious leaders or political leaders that inhabit your daily life? And oftentimes, let me reverse that. Do you want God to care? Do you want God to care even if it means addressing your own wrongdoing? your own sin? Do you want God to give attention to you when it comes to actions where you have been unjust to other people or you've been manipulative, you've been morally questionable at best? And do you welcome his care if it were to confront your dishonesty, maybe confront your mistreatment of others and actions that are rebellious against the Christian faith? Does God care about who you are and what you do to the extent that he cares in a way that is not passive, but is very active. God is shown in his scriptures to be one who will punish and judge all wrongdoing. And the book of Amos shows God as a judge, amazingly, again and again, because he does care very much. In the text, according to Amos, is a a well-to-do man who was used by God as a prophet to people. He wasn't a professional prophet like others. Uh, but he was used by God towards what is known as the northern kingdom of Israel. This, the timeline of this would have been kind of in the middle of the book of First Kings, where things would have happened, and then this call to God's people through the prophet of Amos, and then things would happen immediately after, and then the things that Amos promised would happen would come to happen, and then we're even waiting for more of those things to happen. And in the midst of this, he's saying that God is a perfectly just judge because he cares. This man is not from Israel, and so in many ways he brings an outsider's perspective. Someone who can just walk into maybe your your room or your house or your life and say, 
okay, from an outsider's perspective, I need to say this. Because our God is a judge who you should fear, but also a, a God who is caring, who you can find refuge in. And this very often seems out of balance to us. We want one on others, and we want another on ourselves. So he gives this perspective, and in just the language here, it is thunderous. He was calling God's people to turn to him, the Lord, to repent of their sins and to live righteously as he demands. And interestingly, the period of Amos' words are actually during a time of great prosperity in the land. He wasn't telling these people, you think it's, you think it's bad right now? It's going to get even worse? He's telling these people and saying, hey, it's actually very good now. And in many ways, you should not be acting like you should be acting because these high times will be soon very low times indeed. All was great to man, but to God, he will come like a roaring lion who cares about his people a whole lot. I, I want you to see a couple of things done in this. There are three points we're using an outline on the bulletin provided for you, but I think there are kind of three obvious movements in the text. The book of Amos is nine chapters long, and it can be sectioned off chronologically, if you would, how Amos talks to his people. The, the first section, I think the major section, is in, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, and goes all the way through chapter 3, verse 8, where it is not only showing who is going to judge, but also who is being judged. The main character of this book is obvious. The main character of every book in the Bible is obvious. We often think that the Bible is actually a game plan for my life, when in reality, the Bible is actually about God. He's the main character here. In verse 2, look at what it says of Amos chapter 1. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. God himself is at center stage, and Amos tells of him roaring. He's not passive, but roars out loud about everything that's in front of him. And God roars in a way that you could, you could see it as being described as in a menacing fashion, a hunting, pursuing, not tame lion. And the image is a description of how God's word actually arrives, like a thunder and a roar from on high, ferociously and suddenly. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they had threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Amos uses rhetorical questions in chapter 3 of this book to answer these things. God speaks, and they, in his words, bit by bit, raise an understanding of cause and effect of what God's people have done and God's enemies have done. If you turn over to uh, chapter 3 of Amos, let me just read to you from verses 3 and 4. You'll see kind of the rhetorical process of God's roaring words coming for his people. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The language of this is that people walk together because they're together. So things that God will do, both caring and judging, well, those things go together in the same way that you might walk with a friend. You have an agreement there that you two will go down. Or even the case of a lion roaring because the lion has prey. And the rhetorical list goes on in the, that section of chapter 3. It culminates, though, with a question in verse 6 of chapter 3. You can look there with your eyes. I'll read it out loud. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? The implied answer is yes. Disaster will come 
because the Lord will cause it to happen. He will judge, it says there. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? Here we see God speaking of his sovereign work, his mighty hand that is going to come down like a, like a, for you and me, like a gigantic hammer. He's a God of works, and here he's also a God of words. Maybe you've heard of the phrase, all hat and no cattle. Or maybe you've heard a little less talk and a little more action. People are often very impatient with words. We want action. We want God to take action. But here we have God's work or God's word actually showing up like a thunder from the heavens. An action without an explanation would actually leave us to guess with our own interpretation of events. People are often so impatient with words, but it's God who gives them words, and also, in many ways, his lack of words is its own level of judgment against them. But in his grace, he says what he's going to do and why he's going to do it. God is not like what we often want people to be like. The true God of the Bible incessantly talks. He constantly talks to his people. He talks to you today through his very word. The call of Amos, in many ways, is for God's people to listen to this roar from the heavens in the same way that, in many ways, it is our job to listen to what God says and to speak what he has said to ourselves. He explains the true God of the Bible talks. He teaches us the truth about himself and about us. He's not a mute God, but a powerful God through his voice. He comes bringing words. Look at verse 7 again. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his people. God speaks through Amos, and we should listen. Our churches today, in many ways, should be shaped by the regular preaching of God's word, by the regular reading of God's word, by the regular intake of God's word as we gather. Our individual lives as Christians should be spent learning God's word. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the easiest thing for us to tell you about Christianity is actually revealed to you, not not from our own hearts or from our own mouths, but actually from, from God's word that he gave his people himself. The only hope that we Christians can offer you is actually the words that come from God himself. We often walk around wanting to be great open counselors or psychologists or Dr. Phil, you know, just to you. Can I give you a piece of advice? But the, the thing that you and I must want on the regular, which these people were denying, and we'll get into that to a little bit, is actually what God's word says to the point where we actually agree with it and live it out. When he says this, It may seem tough to follow it, but it is good for his people to follow these words. It tells us about Christ and the hope of forgiveness of sins and the newness of life that we have in him. In many ways, it is a a mark of a people or a gathering or a church of how little they let God speak when they gather, how little they let God direct when they aim to hear from him, how little they want to speak back to the Lord and to other people based on their own hearts instead of his. He speaks, and his words are like a roar. He's not some wimpy deer who's just meandering around in the forest who he wants you to desperately come to him. He is a lion, and his words push people back. And here, his words are ones of judgment. Verse 3 of the first chapter. And in other cases, it says that 
he will not revoke his punishment. He will pour it out. The message of Amos is one of judgment. But who's being judged? So it's clear here that God is the one who is judging uh, his enemies and his people, but who's being judged? The, the book unfolds patiently a judgment first on the nations within this kind of first point. Who's being judged? Well, the nations are being judged. The nation's ignorance of God's character doesn't diminish what they've done. You very often have probably tried to excuse yourself, or maybe someone around you has tried to excuse themselves, but like, I, I didn't actually know better. You know, that's why I hit that person, or that's why I broke that law. Maybe you've driven somewhere in a new city, like I have, and all of a sudden you get pulled over, and they're like, you can't drive that fast here. And you're like, well, I, I, didn't, see it. I didn't see a sign that could tell me how fast I've gone. It doesn't matter what you didn't see. The law says this. And when the enemies of the Lord have been wrecking havoc against God's people, this book says that they will be judged. They'll be held accountable for their sins, whether they like it or not. Now, friend, nobody is excluded from being accountable to God. One of the main things that you and I can take away is that this, this book, in kind of geographical ways and directional ways, kind of paints the picture of God's judgment coming on everyone. You can't hide from it. And the Bible is clear that we all will give an account. The names of everyone will be known at the end. But look at how he does this. He casts prophetic judgment against Israel's neighbors. He, he lists a group that you could see on a map to the northeast, and then to the southwest, and then to the northwest, and then to the southeast, and then to the east, and the nations all around are indicted. There's a multitude of sins that Amos condemns against the world, and it's the nation's cruelties toward God's people. It says there that she took captive whole communities and sold them. It also says that they ripped open a pregnant woman to extend their own borders. These are words against Israel's enemies. And in many ways, you can imagine the Israelites hearing this from Amos and going, about time, this is going to be awesome. Like, like he's taunting the world, and he certainly is. He's saying, those people out there will receive judgment. And, and what is amazing is that this circular fashion actually circles around the very bullseye of what's to happen next. But either way, what this teaches us when you think about the nations or the enemies of God being judged is it teaches us that the whole world will be accountable to the one true God. You do not need to know God's special revelation in order to know right from wrong. The scriptures say this. How the creator intends for you to live in yourself and with other people around you or even in society. In fact, people don't need to know God's what's called special revelation in order to be finally accountable to him as their judge. Romans chapter 1 exposits this all together and that all will be judged because what God has naturally given everyone in their hearts. But also note that God's care for those who are oppressed by other humans is very present in the book of Amos. The anger, you could imagine, of the Lord towards sinful people is because people are being destroyed left and right. And God cares about his image bearers to such a degree that he will punish those who have been ruthless and awful to his image bearers. No matter the nation, no matter the power, God cares about his image bearers. He cares about how they're treated. And the book continues to unfold patiently to where there's a judgment on the nations, but also a judgment on God's people. This is what really the first couple of chapters are about, the circling effect to the point that's being driven home. Amos promises God will judge his people. He launches into Judah in chapter 2, trashing them for their religious sins. Look at chapter 2, verse 
4 of the text. You see the categories, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, all the directions to where in verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. The people who'd be hearing this word are are starting to see the roar get closer. It would be like, your enemies out there are talked about as being judged. Now all of a sudden with Judah, it's like your your friends are your cousins. I'm like, oh, this is is getting pretty close to home all of a sudden. It's there that Amos announces the sins and the judgment that those would have brought on them. They committed economic and religious oppression towards people around them. The, the needy, you can think of it, the poor as it's being talked about, were people who were being abused by those who had much. They'd forgotten the testimony of this. Is they'd forgotten who they really were. You think you're haughty and glorious and awesome. Remember, it was you who was delivered out of bondage from Egypt through the Exodus, and now all of a sudden you're, you're taking other people outside of the grace of God and putting them in bondage and slavery rather than treating others how God has graciously treated you. They committed acts against others around them. They had forgotten what God had done to them. Where they once were all slaves, they now were enslaving others. They'd been given grace, and in turn, they turned into demons. And their work and their worship turned graphically awful. So God says in chapter 2, verse 13, I will press you down in your place, which means I will crush you. I fear that many of you think your proximity to religion or your activity in the church or even our church in particular, your proximity towards religious activities or your actions within a religious movement, actually you think that removes what God promises to do and judge those who are evil and wicked. You know, if you wear a suit and uniform, it's like as if God will pass over you. I think many people act like this. And I know this because I hear far too often that when things go bad in many people's lives, their, their instinct is to, need, is to think that they need to start doing stuff. You know, if I have a bad night, I need to go to three worship services next week. I need to make sure I have 20 quiet times. Something happens to my family. I was on a phone call with a friend's parent who lives in Texas where, where the family is just kind of crumbling around them. And he says, am, am, I being, am I being punished for not going to church? That's what he said. And friends, a lot of you think like that. It is our instinct to think that, that we need to do things to where God is pleased rather than recognizing that, that he was so pleased with his people that he chose from the foundation of the world that he brought them out of Egypt and then said, go and do likewise. Church is a very awful place to hide from God. A religious group is a very dangerous place to think you can hide from God. Where church is actually not to be a place where you hide, but rather it's intended to be a place where you're actually very open, very honest before God. For those of you who might be new to us or new to church in general, it may feel very weird that we have a corporate prayer of confession. In part, we do a corporate prayer of confession to encourage you to do a private prayer of confession where you go before the Lord, maybe in the morning or maybe at night or maybe for some of you very often during the day, and you say, I have not done 
what I ought to do, and I am, I am sorry for this. That is the regular habit, and it's such a freeing habit to live, to live in the light rather than to hide in the darkness, thinking that the all-knowing, all-powerful God can't see you. If they were just in the right camp, if you were just in the right church, if you just went to the right Bible study, then maybe God will be like, well, you're trying. So what you did to that person, bonding them in slavery, I'll, I'll overlook that because you do, after all, read the Bible through three times a year. The God who made us is holy and perfect, and he made us in his image so that we might imitate him to the world. We're recognizing that each of us has fallen. We have, we have sinned against God, and we have separated ourselves from him by our sins. We, we need to recognize that it is God who will speak judgment against all sin and all sinners, no matter what tribe, no matter what language, no matter what background we come from. Amos says that God will judge everyone. Now, the hope in this is actually what happens at the end of the book of Amos, where there is a, there's a promise there of one will be sent who will make everything right. The message of Christianity is recognizing that I, in my sins, do deserve the full and righteous wrath of God. But in the grace of God, because of his love, because of his care for me, he actually sent his very son to earth, taking to himself flesh, who lived a perfect life so that he could live as a substitute for you. So that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus as their Savior, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus as their substitute, can have the, the fullness of hope of what was done where they would be passed over because it was Jesus who wasn't passed over for them. The message of Christianity is that things like this ought to freak us out and scare us to death, drive us to the Lord and say, I have done wrong. I cannot survive your judgment. I don't want to face your judgment. Where the scriptures actually unfold for us is, you are exactly right. You will not survive the day of the Lord on your own. You need a substitute, one who would come in your place. And what he does again and again is in this book is say, your actions show that you are no savior. Your, your alignment with these people demonstrate that, that you are not worthy of saving anyone else, and they are not worthy of saving anyone but you. In the midst of this hopelessness, there's the glimmer at the end where one day, one will come who will judge because the son was judged. The second thing you see is what's being judged in this book, chapters 3 through 6 in part. I wonder if you've ever thought about the focus of God's judgment, the aim, you know, the aim of the weapon, as in what will absorb his wrath. Uh, my, I have extended family who lives just south of Springfield, Missouri, in Ozark, Missouri. And during a time, I think it was like 20 or 25 years ago, I'm looking at my parents, they're, they're not looking at me, okay. About 25 years ago, where there was this new highway being built from Springfield to Branson so that everyone could go see the shows, right? So there's this massive highway being built, and during this time when we were uh, little kids, what they were doing is they were blowing up mountains in order to build a big highway. You could see year by year, season by season, and we'd go visit our family, that there were these drilled columns into these uh, mountain peaks and mountainsides to where dynamite would be stuck in there bit by bit, and an explosion would happen so that you and I can very easily drive down the highway. You know, if you think about that, what was, what was going to absorb some kind of wrath in the Ozarks so that you and I could go hear banjos? These very mountains. And in many ways, we've got to think about if there is judgment coming, what will absorb that wrath? 
to where it can be seen generations later as actually bearing the guilt of that. What will be judged? Well, first, you see that God's people and their things will be judged. God's people and their stuff. The middle chapters of Amos show God being angry at sinful people and at sinful things. He becomes, he becomes angry at his unrighteous people as unrighteous people are opposing his people. And what he does is he gathers, so he's angry at his people for acting unrighteously, and what he does is he gathers enemies around his people to actually start indicting his own people. It's fascinating. Think about it. Because of his care, because of his love for you, he's actually now going to use his enemies, your enemies, to to taunt you, to indict you, to accuse you on behalf of him. Those who should have been righteous are now being indicted by God through the mouths of the unrighteous. Look at chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I'll strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. God will be thorough in destroying Israel's idols and mansions. Their idols were fake gods, mocking God himself, and their mansions were actually testimonies of of self-indulgence. The people are portrayed as if they deserved all. They became proud of what they've done. And you find here and elsewhere in Scripture that proud people very quickly and very often become immoral. And how this regularly fleshes itself out is proud people become sexually immoral. They become monetarily immoral. And they become gluttons. They lack all self-control because they think so highly of themselves, so everything around them is actually for them, whether it's food, people, or activities. The people here are portrayed as deserving God's wrath. But think of the irony here. These, These people had it all. They were doing great. Their grandparents would have been proud of all that they've accomplished generation after generation. Look at their houses. Look at their things. Look at their stuff. They they are so secure. They're so safe. All other forces had declined around them. Israel was at at its peak of prosperity in this timeline of the events of this book. But look at chapter 6, verse 8. This regular rehearsal of what's going to be done to them. Chapter 6, verse 8, says the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Our takeaway here is that pride feeds so many sins, doesn't it? It has terrible offspring. It indulges our self-centered delusions and leaves us defenseless against temptation. Satan here knows that his effort to tempt us with illicit pleasures will meet the greatest success when those temptations are accompanied by a little bit of flattery. Israel became proud. They really thought they were something. Everything was blessed around them, and man, that's because we're good people. We're doing the hard work. We're doing the real work. But God promises to humble them. He would decimate them. He would devastate them. 
Look at chapter 6, verse 14. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Leboahath, the brook of Erbah. He'll devastate them, his own people, but he'll also judge Israel's leaders. Flip back to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He's not only promising to judge his people, but he has a direct aim at their own leaders. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountaintop of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your households, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Amos called the leading women of Samaria, which is another uh, way to say Israel, or another, another word for Israel. He calls the leading women of Samaria cows. That, that'll gain your attention, won't it? Called them cows because they were lazy. They were lazier in their luxurious living, their self-indulgent lies. The women had sinned against the poor and the needy. And God cared about those poor and those needy people. And so God will judge. Israel's notable men also received God's condemnation because they had been using the people for their own ends. They were wrongly complacent. Or as uh, an old translation puts it, they were at ease in Zion, content in doing whatever they wanted. Everything was good for them. If they took advantage of someone, eh, that's probably their fault. They had the opportunity. These leaders of Israel were at ease because of their money, which shows how blind they were to the truth. Chapter 6, verse 6 shows that they were lounging. They didn't care what happened to others. God's people should be honored and protected, the testimony of this book says, not exploited like these men and women were doing. And this is where we recognize that there is leadership throughout the Scriptures. And leadership isn't bad. Bad leadership is bad. Good leadership is called for and exalted. Good leadership is actually a gift of God for the blessing of his people. But Israel's leaders were bad, and so God called them to account. So the people are talked about as being judged. The leaders are talked about as being judged. But thirdly, in this second point, their religious pursuits will be judged. Their religion. Israel became a brand of religion, allowing them to sin and think that God would bless them. They love their sin, and they love their religious practices. They made idols for themselves that couldn't speak, and in the silence of these idols, they only heard approval. That's the language there. How many people today follow this same path, where, where churches in whole actually accept sin, or they hate discipline? They just want to sweep it under the rug, and let's just continue fellowshipping. Oh, I don't want to talk about that, or time will heal a lot of things. Yeah, you were rough, but, you know, it's been, it's been a good summer. So God says that he tried to warn them through famine in this middle part. He tried to warn them through plagues, but they didn't care. He gave them empty stomachs. He withheld rain, the words say. He withheld rain from them and gave it to another place so they could, they could see God's blessing them over here. What is he teaching me now? They endured through thirst. He ruined their gardens and their vineyards. He sent locusts 
He sent devastating plagues. He had them killed through war. He even says that he overthrew them like Sodom and Gomorrah. He described them as a burning stick in the fire, but they refused to return to him as, as if you, you couldn't understand what was happening around them. In, in the book of Romans, it talks about how, in many ways, we, we endure the futility of creation because it serves, in a lot of ways, to wake us up. To wake us up. Because you and I may not hear the word as it's clearly presented. We may not feel the effect, of skin, uh, the effect of our own sin on someone else, but we do feel things like an invasion or a cancer or a death or a crash. And we have to ask, what is that shot across the bow towards me? What's being done in my mind where God is aiming to wake us up? Here he's saying, I've tried I've done all this. I've spoken to you. I've sent people. I've sent creation crashing down, but you refuse to return to me. You think your mighty houses are great refuges. Well, I'm going to take them down too. Or maybe even think your religious practice will save you. Basically, they epitomized unrepentance. They were so fueled by pride that they ignored the warnings that God so clearly gave them. They didn't didn't need it, they thought. We've got it all. I've got my friends. I've got my houses or my wealth, and I've, I've even got my own religious practice. I'm doing spiritual stuff. I'm lighting candle, candles and shaking incense around. I'm, I've, got, I've got three study Bibles. Friends, you see that these trials were actually because God cared about them. He cared so much about them that he was aiming to draw them to himself. He was actually so merciful in this thunder from heaven Because he wanted them to himself. Don't trust in that. Let me tear it down. Now how do you feel? I had a friend who lost everything about 10 years ago. Everything. Imagine a bank account with nothing in it. (laughs) And no way to put more money into it. And after months of of just realizing that this, I don't know why this was done to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to learn from it. I don't know what's supposed to happen. It it finally came to him that, that God had caused this person to be removed from everything that he was placing his trust in. He jokingly said, and kind of cynically said, you know, that was, a, that was a really expensive lesson, but I get it. And with Christ, I have all. Whereas I didn't actually believe that two years ago. I didn't actually believe that a month ago. I thought I had it all, but I really needed this. And now I don't have this, and I realize I have all that I need. Friends, you see that these trials were actually because God cares. He judges because he cares. These go hand in hand. But there's more to come. God says that he would judge them because of how their religion was actually causing them to treat people who were poor. They saw the poor as less valuable than their things. Less than silver and sandals, it says. What's the cost of silver? What's the cost of sandals? Poor people are less than that. These people were being trampled by God's own, crushed and oppressed where the rich got fatter and the poor withered away. And on top of that, they were also unfair towards people and how they viewed and treated them. You can imagine court systems being unjust to a certain group of people or or maybe even friendships being unjust towards other people around them. They were not called to act like that. They were called to act like those who had been given everything, even though they brought nothing to the table. 
A failure to show concern, the Scripture says, for the poor, shows a complete misunderstanding of their very need for how God continues to care for His people. For those who have nothing, it is God who gives everything. So for God's people to look around at those who have nothing, it is my action as a believer in God to say, what's been done to me was remarkable. Where can I step in with you? Their religion took advantage of the poor and the oppressed, the righteous. It obstructed justice and it ignored God's warning as it was a false religion. I wonder if you could mark your own scorecard in this, how you treat others who are image bearers, how you treat those who are having less than you. Our, Our town, in many ways, has an ample amount of opportunity to show those who have a lot and those who have truly nothing, maybe even less than nothing. And how Christians are called to do, they'll be known for how they treat the poor. In the New Testament, it amplifies this, known for how they treat those who are lonely and have not. You think of the widows or the orphans. Christians are a mark of glory to the world to say, I had nothing to, and let me give you all that God has given me. So Amos exhorts Israel, seek good, not evil. This is in chapter 5. That you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. If any Israelites thought their religion would help them, they were about to find out how wrong they were. The real God was about to show up, not the false gods that they had constructed in their minds and who always approved them. Israel's false religion would not save them later on, as it was prophesied about and came to completion when the Assyrian army wrecked havoc on their lives. They had acted like the nations, so God would treat them like the nations. Their religious pursuit was actually just like the pagan practices around them, so God would treat them like the pagans around them, dispersing them among their neighbors. God would judge his people, particularly their leaders, and especially because of the nation's sin-tolerant religion. So that's what's being judged. But in the final chapters, you see how judgment will actually pour out, and it's, it's amazing. It's encouraging, it's haunting, and it's very much there. How will all these people be judged? The nations, the people, the leaders, male and female. Here you'll see the big picture, I think, unfold of God's pure character, and God's pure goodness. Chapters 7 and 9, I think, go together. So that's why I have 7, ampersand, 9, and then comma, 8. I know that 7, 8, 9 numerically go together. But 7 and 9 and then 8 kind of sinks down and teaches something altogether, wrapping it up. 7 and 9 show that God will judge with mercy. His judgment will come and that will be merciful. God's warnings come with opportunities for his mercy to be held onto and seen. In chapter 7, God gives Amos visions of judgment by locusts and fire, but then God twice promises it shall not be. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 6, this is going to happen, but I won't let it happen. You can imagine me like, okay, if that could happen, I want to turn to you so that it won't happen. Why then did God give Amos these visions? The visions taught the Israelites what their sins truly deserved, They were living in a way that deserved devastation by locusts and fire. And so Amos tells them in verses 3 and 6 that the Lord will relent of his fury on them. His vivid visions were intended for fear and correction. 
You can imagine a parent telling their kid before being disciplined, you know what will happen if you keep doing this. You know what can happen. I will relent if you turn away. God's mercy becomes clear in the last few verses of chapter 7, verses 11 through 15, where God promises that the night of his judgment will end. Prosperity will return with God's mercy, and indeed it, it never comes otherwise in the fallen world. And so God will judge with mercy, but he'll, he'll also judge with justice. His judgment will be an extension of his justice. God's judgment will be characterized by justice. The, God's judgment in its entirety is just. That's what should be destroyed, what will be destroyed. And so we can trust that his justice is perfectly discerning. Look at, look at chapter 9, verse 8, there at the very end. Chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Another thing that this will show about how God will judge is he'll judge with an absence of his word. In many ways, this is how God's people are judged. This is how the world is judged, where there is an absence of God's roaring word going out. You see this in the, in the eighth chapter. Chapter eight provides the final reminder of the justice of God's judgment. God would judge because of their sin, and this chapter reminds us that he cares. The Lord presents Israel's sin as a, as a, in chapter 8, verse 7 through 10, as a basket of summer fruit ripe for the harvest. But the picture becomes the grimmest picture in the book. Look at, look at chapter 8, verses 7 through 10. I'll, I'll read it. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on the account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about, and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I'll make it like... The morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. The people's greed was fed by their self-centeredness and self-indulgence. They took bribes and were impartial, it says throughout this work. They were centered on themselves and having little compassion for others. They cheated others out of what they would never realize they had lost. So... Since they ignored God's word, God would actually take his word from them. And some of the most chilling words in the book are in verses 11 and 12, where it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In Israel's history, this prophecy would come true as prophets eventually were not replaced with other prophets. There was an absence of God's word going out. Instead of hearing the cries from prophets' mouths, Israel decades later would hear nothing from God as invasions would come from the Assyrians. So my, my non-Christian friend, you here today, it is difficult for me and us to express to you what a great gift we have in just hearing God's word. Like you, your own in private, hearing God's word, it's a gift. You having 
such easy access to God's word. It is a gift. You having preaching from God's word to us is a gift from God, he says. I said earlier that church is a lousy place to hide from God, but it is a great place to be found by him. In the church, you expect to hear God's word taught and it explained. And so the call for us is to listen wherever we can for God to come for you through his word. In this text, God sent a famine of his word. For centuries, the Bible was preached freely. Think of it from Algeria to Afghanistan. Yet a darkness came, a famine came. And it makes you wonder if this is what God is now doing in our own understanding of Western Europe or even in parts of the Americas where churches have grown lazy and satisfied with very little reading, very little preaching, not because it's illegal, but because God's word says that they've grown unfaithful and they're like fattened calves. In many ways, it's because there are no faithful people who are wanting to hear it. They're satisfied with coming and going, hearing very little from the word where God speaks. A hero of mine told a story as a pure indictment when he came to a church that I was serving at maybe 10 years ago. He came and he was a guest speaker, and uh, there was a Saturday night service and then two Sunday morning services, and he preached the Saturday night service and took us out to dinner and just laid into us because of how disrespectful we were to God's word by not reading it, seeing it as a transition, and just having very little black and white in the service and wanting to fill it just with emotion and gladness. He told the story of a very well known that long ago in England, uh, there would be gifts from congregations that they would give their pastors when they would come. And these gifts were an iron ring that you would place beside a pulpit. You could attach it, and this iron ring would hold something. The gift of the congregation to the pastor, this is in the 16th and 17th centuries, was that they would give them a ring to place beside the pulpit to be filled with an hourglass. And the preacher was given one or two turns of that hourglass, in part so that people would know <laughs> it's halftime, but also in part to remind them that there is so much more of the Lord's word that you and I need to take in, and we have nowhere else to be today. He gave a lecture on this while speaking in London, this person, and he described that, and a, and a person from the, the small group said, well, did that leave any time for worship? Uh, he said, at that moment, I felt the whole Reformation crashing down on me. I composed myself, and then I said to this person, please understand that when these gifts were given to these pastors, some of the people in these churches who gave this gift would have remembered the smell of burning flesh of the people who died trying to translate the word into common language so that you will not disobey it. These churches were hungry for God's word, and they realized that their greatest blessing in life was hearing, embracing, and living out God's word. Friends, the same is for us today. The blessing that God promises when you and I intake, what God has revealed about himself is a blessing that is truly divine. So may the warnings of this book be a warning for you and me. God is serious. He's good. He's just. He judges, and he is caring. He speaks and he expects us to listen. And if you don't, the unimaginable actually becomes very visual. So we should treasure every opportunity to worship rightly, to live rightly, to hear God's word and have it live through us in light of God's grace. 
So does God care? The witness of the book of Amos is that he certainly cares. In fact, he cares so much, he promises to judge the nations and his people. He will judge his people, particularly their leaders, and especially the people's sin of intolerant religion, and he will judge us for our own sin with mercy and justice. We can be certain of that. But if God's judgment is certain, you and I might read this book and be very fearful and think, how can we escape? What the scriptures say and show is that God's justice and mercy have been reconciled, but only in one place, at the very cross of Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, a holy God came and took to himself flesh. He lived a perfect life in order to offer himself as a sinless sacrifice for his people. And on the cross of his crucifixion, he then took on himself the very punishment of God for the sins of those who would turn and trust in him. Then God raised him in victory over death, and now he invites you to repent of your sins and believe in him to the certainty and with the certainty that the judgment that will be poured out on sin will have no audience with you because your sin has already been held by the Son. There's a final roar, though, in the uh, words of Scripture. There's this roar of a lion in this, but there's, a, there's another roar of a lion held at the very end of our Scriptures in their entirety. When God's judgment roars, it will find His people. When the heavens disappear and the final angel shouts, will appear before the throne of God and you will be a part of another roar that you read about in Revelation chapter 19. Let me just give you some of the verses. After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments are true and just. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, a roar like many waters, like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Friend, our God certainly cares. The question is, do you? Let's pray.